Hey everybody, it's February 25th, 2024 here at St. Peter's United Church of Christ in Skokie, Illinois. Thanks for tuning in to the Redheaded Preacher Podcast. I am the Redheaded Preacher of St. Peter's. My name is Richard Lanford. And the message we've got today, uh, you're going to get your money's worth, so to speak. Uh, it is a full lengther and a couple different aspects to it. We also have three scripture readings. One from Genesis, one from Romans, and then the featured scripture for the sermon from the Gospel according to Mark. Our lector is Beth Lanford, and the sermon starts out with a personal story uh, from my own background and uh, quickly moves on to the whole theme of what can we give in return for our life, and kind of in the background, and why. Um, I do uh, spend some time with the Black History Month lifting up some African-American Christians in the not-too-terribly-distant American past, and uh, some of those uh, gave up their life because of their faith, and then I kind of talk about how you and I might, what that might mean for us, and uh, in, a, in a few different examples, and uh, kind of interweaving a once in a while, you know, the, in return for our life, or and be, and really, we it's because that's what the gospel passage talks about: take up your cross and follow me. What shall someone give in return for their life? And also, reiterating that the one who said this gave his life for us. And so, what can we? What else? What can we give in return for the life that he has given us by giving up his life? So, I hope you will find this message informative as well as encouraging, and I look forward to preaching it in about an hour or so, because it's close to 9.30 here right now, and we usually hit the sermon around 10.30 or a little later in our hour of worship here at St. Peter's. None of that really probably means much of anything to you, but (laughs) that's where I am right now (laughs) thinking about that, so I apologize. And let me lead us into the time of scriptures with a brief word of prayer for us. Great God, we give you thanks for this opportunity to listen to your word declared from the scriptures and to hear an exposition of Jesus' teaching. May what we hear bring us a blessing and maybe a blessing to share with others and build them up. We ask your blessing on this time and on the time that follows. In the name of Jesus, the head of the church, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's go. In our reading from Genesis today, the Lord changes the name of Abram and Sari to Abraham and Sarah as God renews covenant with them. There was a change of identity as their relationship with God got deeper. As you and I hear the word from Scripture, our relationship with God can get deeper too. Our identity can change, even if our name doesn't. And like that biblical couple, we too can go forth lust by this new sense of who we are under God. So as we prepare to hear these sacred stories that can change our world, please join me in the spirit of prayer. 
Let us pray. Great God, whose word is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, we ask for your spirit to move as we listen to these passages by what we hear from you. May we be taught and guided, upheld and comforted, and prepared for every good word and work. So we ask your blessing on this time of listening, and as we later think about what we've heard. This we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our reading from Genesis is chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, and then verses 15 through 22. In chapter 12, God called Abram to leave his homeland and relatives and go to a land that God would show him. God promised him an heir. Twenty-four years later, our patriarch-to-be is still waiting. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will take, make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will, and I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land you are now, the land where you are now an alien, all the land of Canaan, for a perpetual holding, and I will be their God. God said to Abraham, As for Sarah your wife, you shall not call her Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will give rise to nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Can a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Can Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live in your sight. God said, No, but your wife Sarah shall bear you a son, and you shall name him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will bless him and make him fruitful and exceedingly numerous. He shall be the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah and you shall bear in this season next year. And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. This ends the reading from Genesis. 
Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the church at Rome. He is connecting the faith of Abraham and the faith of believers in Jesus, explaining that in each case God's righteousness exists and God's promises are received. The reading is Romans 4, verses 13 through 25. Paul wrote, For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it depends on faith in order that the promise may may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but to though also to those who share the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence, in the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Hoping against hope, he believed that he would become the father of many nations, according to what was said. So numerous shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as death, for he was about a hundred years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he, grew, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. <coughs> Therefore his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now the words, it was reckoned to him, were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will, it will be reckoned to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. This ends the reading from Romans. This morning the Gospel is Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. Two weeks ago, we heard the story of the transfiguration. This is what happened and what Jesus said six days before that. This happens right after Simon Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Messiah. Then Jesus began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must, forego, must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all of this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and excuse me, but turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. 
He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful, sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Here ends the reading from Mark and our scriptures for today. But thanks to God, may God show us how to live in our own lives with what we have heard from the Lord. My first two years of college were at Bethel College, a liberal arts school. I was a pretty new believer in Christ. I read the Bible, but a lot had not taken hold yet. I certainly had not read all of it. And this was made evident when one of my, to, to one of my professors, when in a paper I wrote, I referred to the verse, what will it profit a person to gain the world and lose their soul? Who did I say I was quoting? Well, you see, there's this song by George Harrison on the Sgt. Pepper's album called Within You, Without You. And there's a lyric that he sings, and no, I'm not going to sing it today. It's not easy. We were talking about the love that's gone so cold and the people who gain the world and lose their soul. They don't know. They can't see. Are you one of them? In my paper, then, I wrote the quote, prefacing it by saying, as George Harrison sang, what will it profit a person to gain the world and lose their soul? Shows how much of Jesus' teaching I had yet to learn. I know it was from him. Uh, my professor was kind. I don't even know if he responded to that. To gain the whole world, and forfeit their life, as today's translation puts it. And right after that verse, Jesus says, indeed, what can they give in return for their life? And my knee-jerk response is, their life. As in giving our lives back to the God we meet in Jesus, who gave his life for us. Our lives do not ultimately belong to us, but to the one who created us, who saves us, and sustains us. Now, this being Black History Month, I thought I'd lift up some African Americans of our national past whose Christian faith was reflected in their lives, how they found their life in God. Some of them did, in fact, referencing the scripture, did carry their cross, meaning putting their faith into action in a way that put their life on the line and sometimes was taken from them. And here's one you know, Jackie Robinson breaking Major League Baseball's color line in 1947 with the Brooklyn Dodgers. He faced persecution and abuse, as he knew he would. Mr. Robinson was a faithful Methodist, 
as was the Dodgers president, GM, and part owner, Branch Rickey. He said to Robinson that he chose him for this historic position, not only because of his baseball abilities, but also because he knew Robinson had the Christ-based faith that taught us not to retaliate and to pray for the enemy. He knew that Jackie Robinson had a spiritual reservoir from which he drew to not fight back on the diamond no matter what. And Ricky, his fellow Methodist, counted on that and he told Jackie, I'm counting on you, I know you can do this because we share the same faith. As Jackie Robinson himself once said, there's nothing like faith in God to help a fellow who gets booted around. And he got a lot more than booted around. Rosa Parks was also a Methodist and practiced it in the faith of non-retaliation. We know her story as the lady refusing to surrender her bus seat to a white passenger in December 1955. She remained active, as she was then active, in the civil rights movement and later received the Presidential Medal of Freedom and the Congressional Gold Medal. She once said, Prayer and the Bible became a part of my everyday thoughts and beliefs. I learned to put my trust in God and to seek Him as my strength. Here are two you probably do not know. William Seymour. William Seymour was an evangelical, spirit-filled pastor and preacher who helped lead the Azusa Street Church in Los Angeles, which became known as the Azusa Street Mission, the megachurch of its time in a Pentecostal style. It was famous, very famous, for a handful of years, 1906 to 1909 or 10, not only for its size and very unconventional worship, but also because it was racially diverse in its membership and leadership. Look Magazine listed it as one of the 100 most historic movements of the 20th century. William Seymour. And let me also introduce you to Reverend George Lee of Belzoni, Mississippi. He was one of the first African-Americans registered to vote in Humphreys County. He used his pulpit and his printing press to urge others to vote. He carried his cross, all right. White officials offered Lee protection on the condition he end his voter registration efforts. But Lee refused and was murdered. In return for his salvation and life in God, he gave God his own life to the max. Martin Luther King Jr., whom we know as a pastor, the well, most well-known leader in the civil rights movement, rose to prominence during his, through his leadership during the Montgomery bus boycott, helped organize the March on Washington, as well as the Selma to Montgomery March, the president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Well, he was killed on April 4th, 1968 in Memphis. And he said of his faith, I still believe that standing up for the truth of God is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may. There, another example of someone knowing what to give in return for the life given by Jesus who gave his life for us. Some of these, as I said, did sacrifice their life. Others, 
maybe their peace of mind and that of their families, because they let God influence and direct their lives. They used their gifts to lift up others. They were not serving themselves, but their God of love, justice, and freedom. Well, how about you and me in St. Peter's ECC? How might we relate to the teaching? And also how our relating could be informed by Black History Month. Our passage in Mark has Jesus teaching us that merely proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah like Simon Peter did and being excited about it is not all there is to the faith. Unless we're like the thief on the cross who had no time to grow his faith. Because right after Peter's admirable profession, as we heard Beth read, when Jesus, that's when Jesus laid out what that meant for him to be the Messiah, and that he would face rejection by the religious elite, suffering and eventual death and resurrection. Peter could abide none of that. That was not the Messiah he wanted Jesus to be, so Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter, and said, Get thee behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Could that be what it means to deny ourselves, take up our own cross, and follow Jesus as he taught in our gospel passage? To renounce our self-centeredness, our own will for how things are to turn out, and try to see things as God might see them to set the mind on divine things, as in look for the divine perspective or point of view or agenda. Peter set his mind on human things at that moment, not divine. This is perhaps the self in him he had to deny or set down. The self in him which did not take God's plans to heart or mind. I was... Uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Jeffrey Phillips, the senior pastor at Winnetka Community or Winnetka Congregational Church, posted this. It was from his sermon last Sunday, and I thought this is this is what I like to be included in what I'm saying because I think it's pretty good. He he preached, "Give up your ego for Lent. Let go of your need to win. Let go of your need to be right. Let go of your need to be superior." Let go of your need to have more. Let go of identifying yourself based on your achievements. Let go of your worry about your reputation. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Die to being our own boss. Die to calling our own shots rather than God when they differ die to putting our own desires and plans in front of those of Christ. Die to being our own operating system and live as the Lord becomes our OS. This is one way we can lose our life, so to speak, and save our lives in this life and into eternity. Or as my sermon notes for preparation put it, living in the not my will but thine be done world. And is not love the will of God? Are we not turning our agendas then over to that of love? 
Not my will, but thine be done. Love, love is patient. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us. As we turn over our very human will over to living in the thy will, not mine be done mode, we might work, as love would, to become more patient out of wanting to be loving like Jesus. I've shared with you before how I try to be more patient in listening to others more and not jumping in with the spirit of me, me, hear what I have to say. Those caring for children learn patience out of necessity and out of love. Which may be some denial of the impatient self. God shows holy love as God is patient with us. And to be truthful, we show love back to God by being patient in our spiritual struggles, by being patient with God. For those who are impatient, working on being patient is one way to turn our self-willed lives, our ego-driven lives, over to the love from God so we can offer a more patient life. This, in return for the abiding life of faith and hope we get from knowing Jesus. And it occurred to me that emptying the parts of us that would rather ignore or avoid God's desires for us, and turning them over to God, means you and I are doing some what? Self-reflection. We see those things, maybe like compartments in our lives, or books on a shelf in our life. We want to keep God's hands off some of those. And know that that's not taking the divine point of view. Compartmentalization is not giving our ego-driven wills in return for our new life. I'm not saying it's easy. One of the things I learned a little about during our summer class years ago called Let's Talk White Privilege is something called implicit bias. Implicit bias, sometimes called unconscious bias, is the subject of a lot of study. Because there is a subjective quality to it, it's hard to quantify, but attempts have been made to accomplish this all the same. Implicit bias is bias or prejudging for or often against a person or group when we do not even realize that's what we're doing. It happens when you or I allow our own feelings, attitudes, stereotypes, or beliefs to impact our judgment or understanding of other people. It's an involuntary process based on our deep-seated thoughts, which start in childhood. Implicit bias can lead to making judgments or understandings of persons or groups based on a variety of factors. Age, race, social group, appearance, marital status, disability, gender expression, height or weight. Within the realm of implicit bias, there are different categories also. There is affinity bias, when we are more receptive to people who remind us of ourselves or others we know. I've experienced that. There's confirmation bias, which could lead a job interviewer to think, he's from Appalachia, so he isn't very well educated. Ignoring evidence to the contrary, perhaps. The halo effect is another one I've experienced. 
It's when we like something about somebody and imagine that everything about that person must be great. Perception bias is judging someone by the group he, she, or they belong to. Bandwagon bias, to close here, is believing something because everyone else believes it. Implicit bias is still a driver of division between people of different races, cultures, ages, and histories. It's not Jesus-y, but it is Pharisaic. It is like the Pharisees. And you and I can try to put to death on that cross that we carry whatever implicit biases you or I discover we have that we carry and become, in working with them and trying to nail them, become more just persons, a more intentionally welcoming church. Now, how can you or I learn to measure and reduce and understand implicit bias more? The website simplypsychology.com offers ways to do that, to measure, to reduce, and understand implicit bias more. Again, that's simplypsychology.com, one word. Let's put our crosses to use and nail our implicit biases. What shall one give in return for their life, his, her, or their life? Our life. So much of our life is our will, our being in charge. And now this sounds, I'm really, I, this sounds like I think we're always at odds with what God wants, that it's always that we have to change everything about what we're thinking, that it's always, I'm, I do not think that. I refer to the times when our plans or energies or choices do happen to be at odds with living like God wants, looks like. Even the commands were given. I know that sometimes we're not even aware of those times. Or we think we're on the beam, but we're not. This is not a sermon about becoming a mystic, a renunciate, or someone who does not have to worry about their job, their family, paying the bills, enjoying yourselves, and doing things you want. It is a message that says, to the best of our ability, let's remember that Jesus has given his life for ours, so our life, as we live it in love, to the best of our abilities, with help from the Holy Spirit, is given back in glorious return. We surely can have fun living our lives even as we live them in love. Live them as Christ would desire. As Jesus himself said, and I encourage us to pray, not my will, but thine be done. And then none of us are perfect. But as you and I make a start or keep working on it, may God bless us and keep us. Amen. Well, like I said, that was a full service when it came to the scriptures and the length and, qual and quantity of the sermon. Um, you know, the Genesis passage, I didn't remember that the lector had been given that much, that many verses from Genesis 17. And so the bulletin said, 
15 and 16 were the last verses. And she kept on going through 20-something. And, you know, I created this file that she read from, and I sent it to her, but I copied from one that was the same reading from three years ago. But I must not have checked to see that the 15 and 16 was real and that it really did stop there. Because then I would have, if I would have looked, then I would have learned that, oh, it went to 20-something. And, you know, I wasn't going to preach from that anyway. Um, I didn't know that at the time I chose it. But, um, so it added some length to the whole, the whole service. Um, as I told you guys in the beginning, the introduction that I was only going to really preach out of Mark. I enjoyed preaching the sermon. I gave a, a little bit of it um, to our Sunday school chapel, the Black History Month, uh, explicitly Black History Month start or part. I shared with them because I, we talked about Black History Month with them as how as far as you know what did they learn in public school and uh, and so forth. So those kids got to hear it again. <laughs> they were in worship. The ending also, I, I realized the ending was not really typical of uh, the sermons you've heard in the past. Usually you can tell the ending is coming. And even though I did a little mini summary just before the end, it wasn't, I thought it was a little different and that it may have been a bit of a, a surprise ending. So you know, every week can be a little different. I still hope that you found it uh, meaningful and uplifting, encouraging, as I said in the introduction. And next week, we're going to be looking at Jesus casting out the money changers and animal sellers from the temple, from John's version in chapter 2, and also Psalm 19. That's more heads up than I can usually give you, but I've already done the preparations for those readings for next Sunday morning. God bless you for tuning us tuning us in and spending time with us at the Redheaded Preacher Podcast. It is truly appreciated. And so I'll I'll this is the one thing you know I'll always end a podcast with if not always how I end a sermon. And that is may God bless you. And may God bless your week. Amen. Like what you've heard? Hit subscribe to follow and get updates on our newest additions to the Redheaded Preacher. We'd love it if you'd give us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us online under most social media platforms by typing St. Peter UCC Skokie in your browser. Donations are much needed and very welcomed. You can donate to us by going to paypal.me backslash St. Peter UCC Skokie. This information and more can also be found in the show notes wherever you listen to our podcast. Thank you so much.